What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome along, V8 Sleuth Podcast for another week from V8 Sleuth headquarters here in Melbourne. I'm Aaron Noonan. The man across the desk from me is Will Dale. He's got a microphone. He's looking dangerous today. Welcome, my friend. <laughs> uh, I know how you can look dangerous with a microphone. I'm not like a uh, no current affairs reporter or anything. Well, I'm not scampering over a backyard fence at the moment, so it can't <laughs> not be yet. current affairs. Well, you know, I have done some dodgy deals lately, so yeah. I need to do a runner. Hey, before we get too far into this episode, I just want to quickly say a big thank you to everybody who listens to our pod. We're back for a new season. We've got plenty of stuff rolling. Repco Supercars Weekly every week. The Castrol Motorsport News Podcast as well. We've got you covered on the Motorsport Podcast Network in 2023. But as we roll into the start of a new supercar season, and it's the start of a new era, Gen 3, thrifty Newcastle 500, March 10 to 12, I thought it was a good time for us to have a look back at each of the beginnings of the new eras of touring car racing in Australia and, and really drill in at the first races in those eras, because there's all sorts of weird and wonderful stories from across the journey, and there's been these uh, massive shifts in the rules or the the way that touring car racing was evolving in the country, and we're doing it in March. It's completely going to change. A lot of elements stay the same, but there's a lot of stuff that's changing. Oh, absolutely. I'd, I'd probably call this one of the biggest, if not the biggest change that they've made year on year for technical regulations in the history of the, the championship. Which part of that? Is it because there's no Holden? Is it because the engines are from the one provider for each side? What's the big just, take out of that? Just component and parts-wise, there's so few carryovers from the previous generation. I mean, you look back through all the... And I say all the previous generations, the new one's called Gen 3, but there's been more than three yeah, over the past yeah. 63 Gen years. Gen minus five, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. But, like, you could generally, with a few exceptions, carry over a body shell or an engine or something something significant. This time around, the only thing you're really carrying across that's significant is the transaxle. Extra, Everything else yeah. is, is different. Yeah, and if you look at Car of the Future, that was the last new platform that was introduced 10 years ago now, which is scary to think that that much time has flown. But at least in that scenario, apart from the new manufacturers, Nissan and the Erebus Mercedes-Benzes, which weren't manufacturer-backed, we always have to say. It's always a little asterisk when you talk about Mercedes in supercars. Mercedes were involved, but they weren't technically in supercars. No, and and Mercedes-Benz Australia were very, very, very much uh, distancing themselves from it. But the engines for the, the Commodore teams and the Falcon teams were the carryover element. The suspension mm. carried over. Yes, transaxle was new. Um, the control chassis was probably the newest element there. But as you said before, we've seen over the journey, you could carry something across in pretty much all of these eras, or you could get a start the previous season and kind of run your car, albeit not at the front, but at least be putting some miles on it to get it ready for when the rules changed over. So we're about to go into this change, but let's rewind it all the way back to, it's really Gen minus five or six, I think. I didn't do the numbers, but (laughs) 1960s when the Australian Touring Car Championship 
comes to be, single race per year. And the common element of that season was that that's when we had a national rule book for touring car racing formulated. And, and that's kind of what really brought it together to get a championship on the line. So prior to that, you had... Well, you, you did have touring car racing, but there were varied rules from state to state, and you had all these weird and wonderfully modified cars like the Gagan Brothers, um, FJ Holden, that had was basically had a full floor pan underneath to cut the wind out from under it, and Repco heads, and all these other um, great modifications. But by the time, but for Appendix J, the cars became a lot more standard. There still were a lot of um, mechanical modifications that you could do, uh, but in terms of how they looked, they looked very standard. They looked they looked like you could literally buy them off the showroom floor. Compared to what came in the years that followed, they yes. were pretty pretty standard. So that first championship was at New Blood near Orange, 1960. It's very well documented from over the journey. If only they knew what it would become all these years later and all the roads and twists and turns that have unfolded. David Mackay won, so the Jaguars were the car to have in the early phase of Appendix J. Then the Cortinas got themselves rolling. And, of course, at the time, the great race at Bathurst comes along in 63, but the rules for that, run separate for a Very while. Different. They don't come back together. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But to me, it's 65. 1965 is where the next era begins, and that's improved production. That's when we started to get the muscle car element involved, and that's when Mustangs are starting to pop up. And 1965 was still a championship decided by one race, and it was Sandown here in our lovely uh, home city of Melbourne. Our occasionally sunny home city of it Melbourne. It is right now as we record, so shush, don't change. <laughs> just, just just, just hang on. Let's just look out the window. Yeah, it's still yep, sunny. Yeah, no change. Yeah. Still sunny. <laughs> good, good, good. So 1965, it was the Bryson Industries Trophy. I had to look this up. 40 laps at Sandown. And this, actually, this race connects to recent times. Remember when Van Gisbergen had his busted collarbone mm. and he went and won from, what, 14th or 15th on the grid or whatever it was? Was yeah, it was, I think he was further back than yeah, that. Yeah, it was a new record for the, the worst grid position for a winner in a championship race at Sandown. And the record previously was Norm Beachy from 65, who started 14th and won the race by a lap <laughs> in his Mustang. How good was racing in the old days? Oh, it was so good. It was so <laughs> close. I mean, he absolutely walloped them. He started down the back. I think he'd had some, some issues in um, qualifying, pretty much led the whole way. One by a lap over Ian Gagan's Lotus Cortina and Brian Muir's uh, EHS4 Holden. And that's kind of where we started to get that improved production era. And, of course, the, the cars that typified that era, it went very American. You know, the Mustangs, the Camaros, Bob Jane brought one out and got going with one. Norm Beachy, though, flew the flag for the locals with the 327 Monaro, and then he got the 350 Monaro that ultimately won the championship. But um, his first championship win, it was the Neptune Ford Mustang in 65, that yes. blue and white um, car, which... And the other thing, too, is a lot of people forget that was Alan Moffat's Australian Touring Car Championship debut, but not the first time he'd raced at Sandown in touring cars. No, correct. He'd raced in the... the was it the six-hour? Six-hour, yeah, yeah. Basically, the four, the, the inaugural Sandown Touring Car Enduro. Mm, yeah, and, and he was in the championship race in 65. He finished fourth in his little Lotus Cortina behind Brian Muir. So, I and mean, it, some, yeah. some of the names in that field... John Harvey's in a, in a Cooper S. Peter Manton, who was also in Skinny the Neptune Manton, team. Yes. Yep, absolutely. Um, Brian Foley in a, in a Cooper S. Jimmy McEwen in a Cortina. Uh, Bob Jane actually was in a Mustang, led some laps, started from pole, but it overheated. So he was a non-finisher in the first race of the improved production era. But ironically, he would win the end of the improved production era. He'd win the last two championships in the Camaro in 71 and 72. But your, your point from before is right. 
we hear all the time about how it was so much better back in the day, but when you look at the result sheet of this April 11, 1965 Sandown race that kicks off the improved production era in the championship's history, the guy won by a lap. <laughs> like, seriously, that, that's... Is that the good old days? I don't think so. I will also say that based on the prob- problems he had in qualifying, he actually turned a faster lap in the race than the pole sitter did. <laughs> so he clearly had it up and moving. But it's also worth looking at the cars that are actually in that field. We talk- Improved production was basically the time that the V8 engine started to dom- dominate and take mm. hold of touring car racing. Yeah. So every championship was won by a V8 in this period. But you look at where it started, you had a lot of carryovers from the previous year, the previous Appendix J era. So you had Cortinas, you had uh, you had the EH Holdens, you had a Ford Galaxy that finished fifth in the hands of John Rayburn. Which is the car that Lex Davison, I'm pretty sure, put through the fence the previous year oh, yes. in the inaugural Sandown 6 hour that you mentioned before. Yeah. yeah. You had an R-Series Valiant in the field as well. Well, that's that's Clem Smith's fault. Of course, Clem Smith was the long-time... Uh, Ran Mallard in mm, South Australia for yeah, many yeah. years. Uh, he, he wasn't afraid to run a Valiant against these guys and girls. And there, actually, there was another one in it too. I think um, Dick Roberts, Car 17. Dick Ooh. in 17 was happening before Johnson. Foreshadow. Mm, yeah. So 65-72 is the improved production era. And that's, as we spoke about, Camaros, Mustangs, Super Falcons. There's, there's, you know, Malcolm Ramsey Kingswood. Yeah, correct. Uh, which actually, by the way, there's a great feature on that Malcolm Ramsey Kingswood in the latest issue uh, of Australian Muscle Car Magazine. Mm. They're not paying us for the plug. I'm just plugging it because it's written by Mark Osler, the founding editor's back doing some stuff with those guys. And I know a lot of our listeners are muscle car enthusiasts. If you haven't got a copy, race out and grab one. It's pretty cool. Um, read. So 73, we go Group C. So this is where the roads merge from the improved production rules that the championship was run to and the more standard series production rules that Bathurst and a range of those endurance races. And there was still series production touring car racing during the year at other tracks, um, but it was the, the category that underpinned what was Bathurst basically every October. Yeah. For 73, the two roads came together. So the cars competing in the championship were the same cars that would compete at Bathurst and in the Manchamp races, the Sandown Enduro, the Phillip Island Enduro, Surface Paradise Enduro. So we actually got, it was kind of like what had been series production teams and cars kind of formed the basis of it, and but they all spec them up a bit and all the imported type of cars, the Camaros and the Mustangs, they well, they disappeared, but <laughs> Bob Jane found a way to get one back. Yes, I was going to say, except for one very famous instance where Bob Jane won the second race of the um, Group C era at, um, at Calder in his two-time championship winning Chevy Camaro. Um, but was then excluded because they realised that not enough of them had been made or sold in Australia. Had yeah, been sold in Australia. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the car was actually not eligible to take part. But yeah. But he went and competed the race, won it before they figured all this out. Yeah. Could you imagine that happening these days? Oh, Someone goes and yeah. wins a race in supercars. Actually, that car wasn't eligible to race at all. <laughs> uh, we're going to have to take that off you. Yeah. But but the the first race of the Group C era was it. Simmons Plains in Tassie. And Simmons Plains in the 70s was a um, a regular opening round of the championship uh, venue. Mm. And we've actually done a piece uh, on this. It's an interesting one if you look at all the places that have started the championship over the years. There's a story on this in the official thrifty Newcastle 500 program that we've been putting together. You can buy a copy now. The link's in the show notes. But you can grab a copy uh, through the V8 Sleuth Superstore or at the track 
in Newcastle. You'll be able to buy a copy from the Supercars merchandise stands and also from a range of the various Supercars teams merchandise stands as well. But we've done a feature in there that explores the the opening rounds of the championship and the venues and where the sort of that mantle of the championship opener has been over the years because Newcastle this year, it's it's a first. It's the first time it's been an opening round. It's only ever been a Closing round. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, jinx, hey. jinx. Nicely done. But in 73 at Simmons, and I thought this was interesting, so Alan Moffat wins, but he's had to trade in the Coke Mustang, so he's in the XYGDHO Falcon that he goes on to win the championship in that hmm. year. Peter Brock's second in the XU1 Tirana. Uh, John Goss is third. Now, Gossie, though, by that stage, he's into the hardtop Falcon. He's the first to go to the XAGT Ford. He finishes third. Jane is fourth. In his Tirana. So this is the round before he goes back to the Camaro. Yes. Probably should have stayed in the Tirana, just quietly. Um, Murray Carter's fifth. The field is 12 cars for the start of a new era, for the start of a new championship season. But not only do you get points for the Australian Touring Car Championship, this race, the start of the Group C era, also constituted the Tasmanian Touring Car Championship. So Moffat <laughs> is the Tassie Touring Car Champ of 73, do you think we should reintroduce this? We tried to do this in previous years. Remember when we had those four rounds back-to-back at SMP and we tried to get the whole Amstcar oh, series Ca- going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I reckon, seriously, can you become the Newcastle Touring Car Champion if you win this first round? Or will that be Central Co- where does Where does Newcastle fit into all those no- oh, the that nomenclature? Oh, yeah. The Hunter, Hunter Touring, Touring Car, car Championship. Championship. Yeah, sure. I think that's a good if we Surfers could um, determine the Queensland Touring Car Champion. Yeah. Although I think- um, because I, I think it would be Dick Johnson that would hold the well, um, he's got the record of those five million for, for now. Yeah, yeah. Every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars. Unforgettable. Well, Moffat wins this race. It's a 40-lapper. It takes just over 40 minutes or 44 minutes to run. He wins by 27 and a half seconds. So season openers and close margins, not going well. So far in these eras that we're taking a look at. To be fair, the poor the poor Tirana was probably a bit outmoded by the big V eight down um Just Simmons a little long bit. straights. Well, to the point where fastest lap in the race, Moffat's eight tenths faster than Brock. Although Brock had started from the pole, but the interesting part, and this is different era stuff, the lap times that determine the grid weren't from qualifying, they came from the fastest lap times. And you reckon we come up with some weird systems these days, but they had it going back then. So they did a fifth, uh, sorry, a ten-lap prelim race on the Saturday, which Brock won from Moffat and Jane. So the grid for the championship race didn't come from the finishing results of the prelim <laughs> race, from the fastest lap times in the prelim race. Imagine if the F1 sprint race on the oh. Saturday wasn't didn't determine the grid, but the the fastest lap times did. Oh. <laughs> It's a, it reminds me of being at the 12 hour this year at Bathurst where we all sat around and looked at one another and went, okay, so what's the grid? <laughs> the, the way that it had to be all added up with pros and ams and times and who's in the shootout and who's not and who's 11th. and You could work out roughly uh, what it was going to be, but yeah, there, there was a bit of a wait for the official grid. Just a little. Just a yeah. little. So there were 12 cars that ran in that first Group C race down at Simmons Plains. The non-finisher 
was Graham Parsons, Skippy Parsons' dad, hmm. Tirana. A local entry, a local. as it were. I think he was about the only local that ran that weekend. There might have been one or two others, but um, Smallfield, these are, this is in the days, and I'm, I'm not sure, I've never seen any vision of the 73 Simmons round, but I'm sh- if there was television, it was probably ABC, but I... It seems unlikely. It seems unlikely. Yeah. I, I sort of don't feel like they were sort of quite at that realm of regular coverage at that point, but... Um, very different. And the other thing was, this race was on a Monday. Because oh, so they definitely to... wouldn't have been live coverage no, on no. a Monday. Well, well, they used to do racing. on. It was a long weekend in Tassie. So they'd run on Saturday and then on Monday. So just one of those scenarios. We've tried public holiday racing in supercars in the 2000s. It just never really... Like, the theory was good. It just never it just really... didn't work. Grab. Yeah, it yeah. didn't really draw enough of a crowd to make it worthwhile. So Group C... Probably if you think about the more recent groups, the era of the 80s, because the cars got varied, so it wasn't Holden v Ford on their own because mm. the Bluebird came, Alan Moffat's Mazda. Um, Chevy Camaro. Chevy Camaro, the BMW 635, firstly yeah. with Alan Grice, then with Jimmy Richards. Basically, if you had FIA Group 2 and Group two eligible touring car, you could more or less run it with a few mods in Group C. So it's pretty much Holden v Ford, Tirana v Falcon through the set from 73 till 79. Mm. And then it's Commodore and Falcon from 80. But then pretty much 81 is when you start to get the Moffat Mazda arriving, the Bluebird arrives, the BMW arrives, and it goes on in the, the aftermath there. So you still had the spine of the Holden v Ford thing. And probably this is where... The Holden Ford story is hubbed around Bathurst. Yeah. But in the championship's history, it really gets going in 73. Mm. Because with, they're the two contending cars. With the same two characters that sort of solidified at Bathurst with Brock and Moffat. Alan George and Peter Jeffrey. Those are the ones. Yeah. And, I mean, you look at this Simmons Plains field. This is at a time when not everyone did every round. They weren't bound to. There wasn't this structure like there is now where everyone's committed to the championship because everyone's drawing an income from mm. the television money. It's it's an organised, solidified thing that's been the case since Avesco was formed. In these days, it was deals with promoters. Oh, you want to come to our race? You're a draw card. We'll pay you some money. Come on down. You'll help sell tickets. Very different formula to how things flowed back in those days. And when you look at the, I mean, the top three finishing cars at that Simmons Plane 73 round, they're on the lead lap, but fourth place is a lap behind. So is fifth and sixth. Seventh is three laps behind, and eighth is three laps behind as well. So, <laughs> again, was it better back in the day? Oh, I'm sure we're going to get attacked for this, but I guess it's, it's different. All, it's, it's just different. It's all relative, I guess, because that was arguably possibly better than what came before. Eventually, maybe not necessarily this particular race compared to the um, preceding battles in the improved production era, but mm. eventually Group C got pretty good. It did. It, it did get um, – well, you know, motor racing and politics have always been connected. It's just at various times the politics – what you're talking about. Yeah, it takes over a little bit, and then the motor racing takes a back seat. Group C turned into the, the ultimate lobbyist category where people wanted more freedoms for their cars, so they lobbied cams harder. It just went on and on and on, particularly in the latter part of, of Group C. I mean, it was it was going on in the 70s, but it got worse in the 80s because there was – Different. There was more different types of cars, so therefore there were more people with vested interests, <laughs> and there were more people quacking that wanted upgrades, 
want a better engine this, want a better suspension this, want a better brake size this or a tyre size or a, or a whatever. Do you remember when Cam's announced a raft oh. of changes in the middle of a race while all the competitors were out on track? 83 or in Park, I think it yeah. was, from memory, for the tweaks that were coming for the endurance races. Yep. They announced them live during the broadcast. John Smales gets a piece of paper he handed to him. He got the scoop. Yeah. He got the scoop. <laughs> but the, the people that it affected... Weren't the first to hear about it. Brock Could found out about it in the winners' interview, now? didn't he? So let's just pitch, let's just put it this way: it's lap sixty-five here in Newcastle for the first race of the twenty twenty-three Repco Supercars Championship. Um, Scaphy, I've just been past. I'm being Neil. I've just been past a piece of paper. Um, there's a parity change coming for the Camaro for the next race of the championship at the Grand Prix. Uh, it's going to have its ride height lowered this, and it's going to have an engine mod to this. Could that's exactly like what it would be? Yeah. Like, could you imagine? <laughs> Uh, right out sideways. Right out sideways, That's not operating at a high level. No. So Group C, 73 to 84. It's loved and lauded for all of the great things about it. And you know what? We celebrate the great stuff. Like, we don't run totally blinkered, but we also don't get dragged down the negative nest that social media tends to be able to, to bring up. I think if Australian Touring Car Racing made a mistake over its history... It's been at its strongest when it's focused on itself. So the next era where we went, ooh, shiny things, Group A, international. Mm. We had the world element in our motorsport in the 80s really coming in. The world sports cars at Sandown. Mm. The Australian Formula 1 Grand Prix comes to Adelaide. Mm. The World Motorcycle Grand Prix comes to Phillip Island later in the decade. Mm. So the international viewpoint of racing and motorsport and possibilities was really, really high. And the local touring car scene sort of jumped on that bandwagon and went with it. 85 Winton, the kickoff of Group A, probably tells you a bit of what you need to know, that people weren't clamouring and clambering to get going for that first race of the season. Well, the most obvious thing looking at the results sheet in front of me here is the absence of any Holdens. It is the only, up until Newcastle this year, it's the only round in the history of the championship with no Holden in it. It's not the only race... Because there were a couple of races over the history in the early years where there were Holdens that qualified and practiced but had issues and didn't, there wasn't a Holden on the grid for the actual race. Or it was a round where um, the bigger capacity cars were split out from the smaller capacity cars, which each had their own race and there were no Holdens in the lower capacity class, which yeah. we'll also kind of get to in a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for 85, the City of Bonella trophy race, the first round of the 85 championship, it's Group A. There'd been Group A cars appear late in 84 at Bathurst. Jim Richards ran the JPS BMW at the Calder Australian Grand Prix event. Um, Dick Johnson had his Mustang floating around. I think Bondi had a... Bondi had an Alpha. Yeah, that was built out of a Group C car. Group B Group car. car, sorry. Yeah, correct. So unlike the, the, the change we're going through now for Gen 3, some of these Group A guys and girls could actually get the wheels rolling in 84 because it had been a thing overseas in, in Europe. So... Before they really got, and remember that Kevin Bartlett had a Starion yep. as well that had he'd been in Group E, but Group Aified it if that's mm. a, a term. So for Winter '85, new era, how exciting! Channel Seven become the host broadcaster for the first time for the Australian Touring Car Championship from a full season perspective. They covered the odd round over the the journey. ABC had been a pretty regular broadcaster of it, but it wasn't even shown live. It wasn't <laughs> even shown as a full race. That's crazy. It's hard to make a mark for this. Could you imagine a new era, new cars, all this stuff to talk about? Yeah, you're just going to have to wait for some highlights. 
different times. Yes. Yeah. Was that, oh, what were we? 10th of February, 1985. So that's outside AFL season. Did Seven even have AFL rights at that point? Yeah, they did. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. VFL, right? Ah, oh, sorry, VFL. Yeah, VFL. yeah. Some would say it still is the VFL, mm. but that's <laughs> depending on what state you're from. So the City of Benalla Trophy race goes to Jim Richards. 50 laps. This is the short track at Winton. No such thing as the 3K track back then. He dominates. So we're not going well for winning margins and close races in the first races of new eras here. We've got a theme going. Yes, He wins by a lap. Again, another lap victory over Neville Crichton in the other JPS BMW. Jimmy leads all 50 laps. Um, there's no uh, Kevin Bartlett's third in the Mitsubishi Starion. Alan Jones is fourth in Bondi's other Alpha. And Brian Sampson's fifth, two laps down, in a Starion. That no. had also been a Group E car. Yeah, that was another one. Oh, yeah. Laurie Nelson's Mustang was sixth. Yep. That had popped up at Bathurst the previous year. John Smith, Toyota Team Australia, Toyota Sprinter. Bob Holden, Laurie Hazelton in a converted Group C Capri. And? Mike Meneer's Volvo 360 GLT. Very good. Um, Dick Johnson, non-finisher in the Mustang. That kept cooking itself and overheating. He got going again, but he didn't do enough laps to be classified. Greville Arnell, that was a starring that had been at Bathurst the previous year. Gary Wilmington's Jag, Don Smith's Mustang, which had been at Bathurst the previous year. And Bondi had an oil filter drama in his Alpha. So... Ten cars finish from the 15 that start. The winner wins by a lap. It's not on television live, and there's no Peter Brock, no Holden. Um, By this stage, the Volvo hasn't appeared yet. It's still coming. There's no Alan Grice. Alan Moffat's parked. Ooh, not exactly a great start to a new era. But again, as the year went on, all these other elements, like Brock turned up for Sandown and won a race. Um, At the very next round, Robbie Francovic turned up with a Volvo, won the race. Dick became stronger and stronger with the Mustang. Everyone sort of caught up to the performance of Jim in the BMW, even though Jim basically dominated the season. And it became like some of the racing from 85 was fantastic. Mm, it it's just a, took a little while to get going. Yeah, the Calderounds amazing. Oh, it's a banger. Yeah. Literally. Yes, yeah. <laughs> there was Not a single straight panel left I, on any car. I love how they all say how back in those days they never used to rub and it was all fair. Bullshit. Go and have a look at the DVD <laughs> of that race. They were absolutely belting in on one another. Francovic, Johnson, Crichton was great. Yeah. It was probably the best Group A race of the year, just about. But Top five, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Group A really took on that. It was a bit like Super Touring was later on. Dominant car of each mm. period. So the BMW rolls out at the start of 85 with all of the learnings of 84 and also Europe and absolutely drills it. They yeah. absolutely nail it. But then the turbos come along. The Nissan. So Nissan are not even here. That's the other thing missing. Yeah. Remember that the Bluebird was gone, so they had to go Skyline. They didn't have the Skyline sorted for 85. It didn't pop up till 86. So there's a lot of elements that weren't there for the start of a new season of Australian touring car racing. It's mind-boggling to think that some of your biggest stars just, oh, they're not it. They're not there. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. But, again, it's just a different time and a different era. I think the best part of this round that I can recall. Do you remember seeing some of the vision of... So this is Red Jacket Land, Channel 7, <laughs> Gary Wilkinson doing his thing. I'm not sure if Crump- Crumpton was there. I'm not quite sure. He was definitely starting with seven at that point. And then Wilco does his walk and talk down the cars on the old pitch straight there at Winton, and it just takes you back to those days. And by the way, I did speak to Wilco recently. He's up for being on the podcast. Excellent. I need to go. Fantastic. He, he lives up in Queensland these days. Um, I know he was um, planning to come down to Melbourne to work on the Australian Open, which he's worked on for so many years. 
Um, and I spoke to him for a book that I've been working on and more details on that book soon. Um, but I reckon he's going to be a fantastic pod, so I'm going to try to grab him this year to, to have a chit-chat. He has the best broadcast voice in the history. <laughs> I hate my voice being like in the same chat with Wilco because the voice is just outstanding. It's impossible to beat. It's impossible to yeah. beat. It's impossible to beat. So from 85, we take a look at that Group A era. It goes to the end of 92, albeit it's Group A Australianised by, by 92. The end, There's yeah. a few tweaks and tunes going on to try to even out the competition and to try to bring all the cars into the mix and not be blown off the track by the Nissan GTRs, which became the dominant car of the latter end of Group A. So for 93, it all goes V8. So the first race of 93 at Amaru, though, a lot of people forget this. There wasn't a V8 in the race. No, and it was won by BMW. Which is ironic because it was one of the old Group A JPS BMW M3s and mobile Brock cars. So the original idea was to have, yes, all the great V8s back at the front of the field, Ford versus Holden, how wonderful, plus a few two-and-a-half-litre BMWs in amongst the outright cars. With a bunch of B&H and Diacode cars, yeah. Correct. But also, Cam's sort of hedged its bets and had a two-litre Australian Touring Car Championship component and the idea was that the two-litre cars would have their race, the five-litre cars would have their race, and then they'd be a combined final. Mm. And that's how it played out for the first round at Amaru. And then they realised, well, the two-litre race doesn't really make for much of a spectacle. So the two races, they instead of having three races for the second round at Simmons Plains, they just had two races all in across both fields. And just had a point score going for the, the two-litre cars. Yeah. So that very first race of the 93 championship, this new era, V8s, it's a two-litre race. There's nine cars in the field. Peter Dillman wins it in the M3. And, of course, this is at a time that the British Touring Car Championship starting to really get cracking mm. with two-litre racing. Um, the smaller car class had kind of struggled in the previous years of Group A because once Toyota Team Australia pulled out at the end of 1990, it just left a bunch of privateers to fight in Corollas, basically. There was always a decent number of those kicking around for Bathurst, but in the championship, it was very sporadic. So Dorman wins this, what was it, an 11-lap sprint race. Mm. Uh, He and John Smith go at it. The new Corolla Seeker Caltex cars, they've only got one ready for Colin Bond, and it proved problematic. So, so Smithy's in the so A92 hatch. In the old, yeah, yeah, he's in the old hatch Corolla, which would have been one of the cars that, that ran at Bathurst the previous year, either with um, the Bates twins. The or... Bateses or the Bargses, I'm not sure yeah. which of the two. But um, Smithy finishes second. John Cotter in the other BMW finishes third. Here's some Corolla names from the past. Mike Conway, Brad Stratton, Frank Binding, and Ken Talbot ran it out the field, and Bondi was a non-finisher as well as Greg Easton. So not exactly a memorable race to start off a new era um, of Australian Touring Car Championship history, but it is in the record books. It did happen. It was the first race of the V8 era. It just didn't have any V8s in it. (laughs) Much more memorable was the second race of the V8 era, which had V8s in it. (laughs) It was, and and Dick Johnson was the first winner of a race for, well, not just V8s, the BM um, two-and-a-half-litre cars are in there, and a few recycled Group A VLs and VNs. I think Terry Finnegan was still VN at that stage. He hadn't quite updated the Food Town Supermarkets Commodore to the winged VP spec. But Johnson won, I think it was, yeah, it was an 11, it was an 11 lapper as well. So they got the same distance as the, the two-litre cars that had, had done 11 laps in a separate race. Johnson scaved Seatonbaum Mazira, sorry, Mazira, 
who led a top five. who was on pole and led across the top of the hill and then got bumped out of the way on lap one. Oh, that's right. And this was, of course, the dash is in its second year by this stage. Mm. So a little bit of theatre, a little bit of Mike Raymond, a little bit of speedwayness in the whole thing of drawing the card for the dash for cash, put you back, six-car field for the um, the sort of the, the hit out to determine the top three rows of the grid. Live on Sports World on Sunday morning? Yeah, usually. I think at that stage, I'm not sure if it was fully live, but I do remember seeing it live in where I could. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car? best suited to. Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. Because isn't it funny, right, if we compare the start of this era to now, so 93 to 23, we're 30 years on. So 30 years of essentially the same formula. Yeah. And I tell you, this is why, okay, yes, there's been little shifts, Car of the Future, Project Blueprint, but at its core, uh, seven and a half thousand rev limit, five liter V8 engines, rear wheel drive, Holdens and Fords. Okay, there's the odd interloper along the way in Car of the Future, but nearly for 30 years. This has been it. This has been so the show. Te- so tell me that supercars is dying or a failure over the journey when it outlived and it has outlived. And okay, it's a new era now. It's still supercars, but I would say clean break, the formula's changed. I'd take that 30 years. Okay, let's look at the eras of all the others. Well, improved production, seven. Mm. Group C, 11. Group and there were some A, big changes within that Group C era yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, group A, seven. Yeah. At the core, we've had the same formula for such a long time. I can only laugh at people who keep writing on socials how supercars is dying. It's a bloody long death. <laughs> Talk about being drawn out. Holy hell. Uh, Jeepers. Yep. Anyway, enough of me. Oh, by the way... <laughs> Uh, so Dick Johnson won that first all V8 race, but he popped a tyre, remember, in the final. He sure did. Over the top of Bitchapave and whoop, off he goes. See you later, mate. Oh, this is the one where it got red flagged, didn't it? Correct. And you had a multi-car shunt at Stop Corner. Oh, with uh, Connors BM, and- Finnegan and Bob Pearson's Commodore yes. just nose to tail. But this is the one where... Have you seen the onboard camera from sure Brock's car? Yeah. Jimmy Richards just doesn't notice that there's a red flag or a yellow flag or whatever it was near the stop corner. Arrows into the back of Brock and doesn't drill him flat in the backside, but sort of clips him on the clips way, him on the way past. Hard, yeah. What was Brock's line? Richo the dickhead just ran into me. What's going on? <laughs> I don't think they played that line in full. No, I think it got to run yeah. somewhere later on down the track, but um, but it sort of indicate like the, all the racing throughout that weekend sort of set up a lot more body contact, a lot more aggression, a lot more entertaining to watch than mm. certainly than the Group A years had been pr- in the recent history. And the good thing about it was Amaru wasn't a track that it it had rise and fall, and it wasn't an aero track. Like there's not many high speed corners where how mm. well your car is at aero affects how you go. Yeah. And those wings were pretty rudimentary on those cars, well, especially the, the Commodore, Commodore one. <laughs> they, they flash. But my enduring memory that whole weekend is the, just the spoilers that just would blow off the Commodores. I think Garner did most of a race without one. And the Winfield faster. cars were absolutely demolished. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of the 
it was very clear from the start that the Ford had an upper hand and the Holden blokes had not quite done the, the aero work quite right. It became very apparent by Phillip Island. And that was the perfect place to, to show it up as to how it would be. But John Bow won the all-in final from Seaton, Scaife, Richards, Gardner, AJ. Uh, Trevor Ashby finished seventh. Mm. The first of the BMs, though, Tony Longhurst was eighth. The dude, Paul Morris, ninth. And Neil Crompton, tenth in the GIO Commodore. So the, the BMW M3s, if they didn't go good at Amaru, they were kind of going to go no good anywhere. And they, they really struggled to be on par with the V8s. They'd also been heavily strangled with rev limits and weight limits as well, or extra weight. It so. was clear that they wanted them on the grid to bolster ranks, but not to be running at the front. Yeah. Which yep. is a shame because BMW had been... Huge supporters of local motor racing for over a decade by that time. So As had Nissan, and they weren't on the grid at all because they had no car to do so. Exactly, and people are still shirty about it ever yes. since. So 30 years ago, that's the start of the – well, it wasn't the V8 supercar era. It's the five-litre formula era, but yes. you know the, the brand is what changed later on. The technical regulations, Just underpinnings of, yeah. were, were pretty much where it started. So from – oh, by the way. Bow, Scaife, Seaton was the overall points for the weekend. So a slight difference on how they finished the last race, just for those historians out there who are trying to recall stuff. So we, we've had this phase of 93, 03, Blueprint comes mm-hmm. along, 13, Car yeah. of the Future, and 23, Gen 3. So every 10 years we've had these little resets. It's interesting how that's kind of worked out. I'm, I'm sure no one's planned it that way. It's just how it's, it's just how it's naturally evolved. And... It, make, it kind of makes sense. You look at how that first 10-year period of five-litre touring car racing went on. Like, the parody, like, we talked about the parody and the politics. That got worse and worse and worse. Like, it was bad to start with, and then it just got increasingly intense with Ford claiming it had an aero disadvantage with the AU Falcon and then getting the front bar of the AU and complaints from Holden runners about wanting the Ford front end. And eventually that's what led us to Project Blueprint where a lot of things were standardised across the two cars. I think people just got sick of hearing the whinging. Yeah. It just went, oh, if we make the suspension underpinnings the same, if we make the aero efficiencies the same, then, but then there's always going to be the argument about, well, they're not the same and mm. so on and so forth, which will never end. But that's motorsport and that's passion and that's – I'd be worried if a manufacturer or a race team wasn't trying to push the envelope. For sure. Because that's the aim of the game. Yeah, try and get one past past the series. Exactly, exactly. Or the opposition or, you yeah. know, the wicket – whoever it might be or whatever yeah. sport you're in, that's the aim of the game. Um, and then it also it's incumbent on the series not to let them. Yeah, correct. Like, it's a two-way street. Yeah, like. Correct, correct. So, by the time we got to what became Project Blueprint, the cars didn't... We, we had a change in model, the AU Falcon to the BA Falcon, the VX Commodore to a reskinned VY, same floor pan, though, in essence. But it was the Blueprint stuff that's what changed it. And as we talked about, the commonality, particularly the suspension. So, the Commodore, after running the McPherson strut for all that time, goes to the double front wishbone as the Falcon had been running. So, then the arguments of who's got what could go away because they would have the, the mm. same thing. Which, funnily enough, they'd asked for early in the five-litre era, but on a basis of, I think, cost. I think this was around when the VR Commodore was coming in. They didn't want to basically junk everything that had come before at that point. Yeah, they didn't want to have an all-new car. So mm. they want to keep... And that was the key. They kept the underpinning. So VP to VR, mm. you could reskin one, run the same engines and gearbox and driveline and, you know, some modifications, but... You weren't building a whole new car. No. You're building a new model car. Yeah. But the bit was that the bits 
would, you know, be able to still go down the line. And the same was the case for start of Project Blueprint in 2003. So Ford have a BA Falcon, so it's new. The VY Commodore, there's a mixture. Some were brand new, fresh VYs. Some were VXs that had been converted. But With then the big you had front the front cut, yes. Yeah, the front cut off, double front wishbone. Some cars, they didn't go that far. Scaife's Golden Child, they didn't chop the front off it and redo it like other teams did. But then you had the added element that you had different engines with the Commodores because this is where what was originally called mm. the Aurora engine, which later sort of became known as the Holden Motorsport engine and the engine that then flowed through for the following years, that's when that came along. But not everybody had that. No. Some of them had the 18-degree existing Chevrolet. Um, so you had this real hodgepodge of BAs, AUs with people who were not quite finished all their BAs. And AUs that had also received a parity adjustment with this incredibly long front splitter on it to try and balance it out with all the new cars. Didn't help it. No. Um, well, it wasn't fast. Might have yeah. been nice to drive, but it definitely <laughs> wasn't quick. Then you had brand new VYs with the new engine, brand new VYs with the old engine, converted VXs into VYs with old engine. I think I've covered it. Anyway, there was just a lot going on. It was a real hybrid thing, but through it all, the bloke that won the first race of the Project Blueprint, I'll say that right, era, is the bloke that won the last race of the previous era. (laughs) Marcus Ambrose, the man who gave Ford fans hope for the new era. Well, I think they were really busting to get their hands on the BA. Yes. And Stones had really lined themselves up for this. And he was at the peak of his powers from here on. So the Ambrose era begins with the first race of the Project Blueprint era. 2003, Clipsal 500 in Adelaide. The traditional 78 laps. He wins over Scaife in the converted VY, which was the Bathurst winning Golden Child uh, in VY spec. Then Jason Bright. Remember Jason Bright driving Team Brock, but with mm. better electrical Number 50, 05 reversed, yeah. uh, VX Commodore, the older model. So this is part of the Clayton – well, this is as the wheels were falling off and had fallen off Walkinshaw's empire. Mm. So this was Keys and Paul Wheels' team in as part of the Clayton enclave as a third team with Brock as a figurehead, although not a financial partner. There was a lot to go on. There's a lot to unpack from this first race of a new season and a new era. Well, wasn't Brighty in – basically the same car he'd been racing the previous year at HRT, just in yeah. new colours and with a new team. It was the car that he debuted at Winton in 02 yeah. as a HRT car, drove through the rest of the year, and it just got wheeled out of the HRT workshop into... I remember that there was another workshop in the Clayton Business Park, much smaller one, where uh, Team Brock, PWR, w- was set up, and that's when Phil Keat came into supercars with, mm. with Jason Bright from the Subaru Rally Program. But, yeah, and it got everyone's attention because Better was the Briggs Motorsport sponsor. And here mm. they roll out these cars at the Grand Prix earlier in the year with better on them. Yeah. It was like, what? Yeah. Hang on a minute. So there's plenty going on. And it was a big field. I mean, it's 35 cars, I think, from memory. Um, Craig Lands debuts with Ford Performance Racing after a, an off-season swap from, from Double O. Um, Rick Kelly's, by this stage, a Kmart guy. Uh, Todd Kelly's now a HRT guy. Yeah. Um, Paul Umbrell's replaced Russell Ingle, who's gone to Stone Brothers. Um, there's plenty going on. Team Dynamic makes its debut in the championship on its home soil. Yep. There's a lot to unpack. Start of Mark Larkham's final season as a driver. Bugs joined him in the other car. Yep. Um, David Thexton, non-qualifier. Oh, that's right. Yeah, for those who love a bit of Thexton, I know there's plenty of them that follow us on socials. They'd be disappointed if he didn't cop a mention. So that was the AU Falcon he was in at that stage. and. 
didn't qualify within 105%, so did not get a, a go at this one. David Bernard, everyone forgets, he was with Ford Performance Racing in one of the older AU Falcons for In that a one. third FPR car. Ah, because Seaton was in the, well, second one, I guess you'd say. Yeah, which was also an AU to yeah, start the season. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Greg Ritter replaced Lowndes at Double O Motorsport. That didn't even see out the season. But we've actually got a tighter finish for a first race of an era. Ambrose by 2.2 seconds over Scaife, but Bright third is 15.8 seconds off the win. So we're getting better at our winning rates in and, terms of our margins. And you look at the compa- relative competitiveness of this as well. A lot of different cars led this race at various points. Lowndes led the race. Uh, Bright led a fair chunk of the race. Scaife, Steve Richards, Todd Kelly, and Rick Kelly all led the race at some point, whether it was through pit stops or yeah, whatever. Yeah, a bit of that going on, I reckon. But... Yeah, I mean, it's 19 cars finishing on the lead lap, 29 cars finishing of the 34 that start the race. Um, But the thing that stands out to me looking back at this, so Greg Murphy finishes 10th. This was another day. This is probably an unhighlighted day of sense of humor failure for Gregory. Mm -hmm. When I look at the penalty sheet for the day, this is why he would have been filthy. (laughs) So he gets a pit lane penalty for a false start. All right, off you come, in you go, peel down the lane. 78 laps, traditional Adelaide 500 race distance, there's time to make that up. Not when you get another pit lane penalty because you sped in the pit lane on the first one. But that was the end of it for him, right? No. (laughs) So he got a third pit lane penalty because he sped in the pit lane on the second one. Sense of humour failure. So you reckon he blew up at Winton that day later in that year? Adelaide must have been a cracker too because it just doesn't stand out as much in people's memories. There's a six-month period of him copping the five-minute penalty at Bathurst, triple penalty at Clipsal, and then, oh, and he got hedged out a third the following day but got it back. Oh, by Ingle. By Ingle. Yeah. Uh, Didn't get to stand on the podium but got the place back. And then Winton. Yeah. Yeah. Had a bit going on. Yeah. uh, But it all come together in October. Yes, it sure uh, did. It kind of nullifies the, the enormity of the lap of the gods day and the race win outdoes all this. That's why this stuff's not remembered as much, but that's why we dig it up Yeah, here on the V8 Sleuth podcast. We're all over it. As we look at the start of new eras of the championship, um, 2003 was the start of Project Blueprint. So let's fast forward. Oh, by the way, Scaife won on the Sunday. So he won the Adelaide 500 because mm. Sunday winner gets the big trophy. Steve Richards second, Paul Wheel third. Remember that Wheelie didn't get to stand on the podium because Ingle did because he'd That's spun who Murph got the podium. Sorry. And Wheel not finished Murph. fourth on the track but yes. got the third uh, later on. Paul Radisich was fourth actually, by the way, for Briggs on the Sunday. Anyway. And the last Clipsal to not feature Triple Eight. Yeah. Last season open on, not to feature Triple Eight. Great point. And, and they came along later in that year and – for 04, they were on the grid. Let's fast forward to the next new era, Car of the Future. So another 10 years forward, 2013, again, Adelaide, again, 78 laps. So in this situation, 28 cars, and as we said at the start of this, there's still carryover. Yes, mm. brand new control chassis. Everyone has got the same metal underneath their panels, but Nissan are in, Erebus have got their three Mercedes-Benz. Uh, the VF Commodore makes its first appearance. The FG Falcon has been in before, but it's in a new era of type of car. Yep. But there's carryover of componentry. There's clearly a lot more control componentry coming in 
that we've now taken another step further with Gen 3. Mm. But the racing was still solid. The racing was still interesting. You still had the star name drivers. And unlike those previous eras early on where we had new era start, there was crossover and carryover of drivers, teams, technical equipment to a point. Mm. But it was a refresh and a revise because we had these new brand cars in the series that we hadn't seen for a long time. Hang on. Have a look at this margin of victory here. I was going to say that. So Craig Lowndes is the winner of the first Car of the Future race era. 20.5 seconds. If I recall correctly, that was the biggest margin, winning margin in Adelaide 500 history at that, that time. Point. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. No safety cars in mm. that first race of the new era season. 13 cars finishing on the lead lap. But Davison's 20 seconds behind, but he in turn finishes 12 seconds in front of Jamie Winkup who's third. So 32 seconds covers the top three. When you look at that sheet, you go, yeah, that's actually not that brilliant. But it was tight for fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. They're all pretty close behind. Alex Premer was fourth yeah. for GRM, which often, is, that's often, probably his best result for them, surely. Often forgotten about how strong he started that 2013 season alongside but, Scott McLaughlin. McLaughlin finished sixth and pretty soon... 33 was in front of 34 far more often than mm. the other way around. Uh, the other thing, too, I think the standout that I recall here, too, so Shane Van Gisbergen won the Sunday race, but he was out because he had a transaxle issue in the first race. He, remember, he was retired. He was gone from supercars at the end of the previous season from Stone Brothers. Now, all sorts of stories as to why and how, if it was all a ruse or if it was a genuine thing, I guess not, we'll never really know. judge. Yeah. Um, but he came back with Techno, won the Sunday race. But he was one of the ones that fell victim to issues with the new transaxle. Remember that um, that was new for Car of the Future, completely new setup compared to the previous cars. So that was an Albans unit, um, mm. and they used Albans for quite a few years before they swapped to the X-Tracks that are carried over into the Gen 3 cars. But it reminded me too, so Mark Winterbottom, um, they changed the transaxle in his car. He did 11 laps in that Adelaide race, and then they just withdrew it. Because they'd save the tyres. Just these little things yeah. that you forget about. Well, didn't those guys both start on the front row and both strike yeah, gearbox dramas they did. or transaxle dramas they on lap did. one? Yeah. Van Gisbergen was on pole and Frosty was second. Mm. Lowndes won from third on the grid, led 47 laps and got the job done. So, yeah, car of the future. Actually, Maro Engel got a rough welcome to supercars <laughs> that weekend too, by the way. Of course, the German who we've seen him race at the 12-hour in recent years was in the news this year fighting for the win late in the race. Uh, he made his supercars debut. He replaced Van Gisbergen, car nine, the SP Tools car, mm. which became a Mercedes from Erebus. Lost his fastest time for qualifying because he caused a red flag, bench from the session. Copped a $300 fine for speeding in the pit lane during practice and copped a 1000 buck fine for crossing the blend line at pit entry during the warm-up with 500 suspended until the end of the year. So not a really nice welcome for him and that's the championship. And that's before we get to how hot it was in the cabins of those Mercedes that weekend. Oh, yeah, that was cooking. I remember the vision of Holdsworth getting things put under his feet just to try to get him through. Yeah. The heat shielding coming through the firewall was one of those things that... Until you're in the situation in the race, you don't quite really know. And they don't yeah. run that sort of distance in that sort of temperature up until that point. But we've got 10 years to look back at this car of the future. And a lot of people will say now, why don't we race, you know, what's driven on the road and why are they all control chassis? They're control chassis because they're race cars. Yeah. And, and the reality is 
what we don't make road cars in this country anymore for this style of racing, and that's we don't the, make them anywhere. That's the thing. What, so what if, are you going to do? What would you choose to put out there as a platform of race cars uh, now? I like if you're going to use road cars, you, you can't. Uh, production car racing is a thing. It exists. It has its place. Um, but the BMW Cup, on. you mean? Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The X Cup. But we've moved on past that in supercars. I want to see fast cars that like they're racing cars. They don't need to be production cars or have that connection to the road. I mean, Formula One looks pretty successful to me at the moment. You can't <laughs> try one of them on the road. So I will say though, for this new generation of cars that we're about to see go racing, it is nice to see them more closely resemble what they are supposed to be. But you know the weird thing? I look at the new Mustang. You're struggling it's with weird. it, are you? Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. Because I've got so used to the Gen 2 Mustang from 2019 onwards mm. that it's the Mustang in my brain. And then you bowl out these, what is it, 11 new Gen 3 cars. And, of course, they are much more Mustang in their look and feel. But I got so used to the existing one that this is a little strange. It's yeah. going to take me a round or two to, to get my head around it. At Newcastle, when they go roaring past, I'm going to have to just rewire the brain. But mm. by the way... Is it just me, or does the Mustang look a nicer car for liveries and the Camaro's a bit not – its dimensions are a little bit different? Some cars, the livery doesn't really sit nice on a Camaro. I think it's – I think between the lower roofline on the two car across both cars and the fact that the Camaro probably has a skinnier – is a bit skinnier top to bottom of the doors than the mm. Mustang, or at least mm. visually with the, with the various design cues it has, I guess it makes it a bit more challenging. But then you also look at, for I was think, thinking about this this morning off the back of listening to the boys talking about this on the Castrol Motorsport News podcast. A livery like Triple Eights has a lot of primary, a lot of two two primary sponsors it has to work out, and a lot of associate sponsors. So, package. So Pete Hughes has done a great job trying to package mm-hmm. all that into that shape. Yeah, it's difficult because you've got all these corporate considerations at mind. You've got the 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 cars, physical dimensioning and styling and. There's, there's a lot to come up with. But at the end of the day, it's about going fast. No mm. one cares what it looks like as long as it's winning on the track, and that's what they're hoping for the first race of the season in Newcastle. But we know the deal. We've looked at this plenty of times. So Lowndes wins that first car of the future race in 13. Triple Eight are the experts at winning the first race of a season. Mm. They just keep doing it. I think it's 15 of the last 17 or something along those lines. There's a bit of a story about it in the uh, official program for the Thrifty Newcastle 500, which, by the way, if you haven't ordered it, you can order it online. Uh, the link is in the show notes to take you to the V8 Salute Superstore. And while you're there, grab a copy of the 2023 Supercars Season Guide while you're at it. And there's a whole pile of other cool stuff, model cars, puzzles, books, all sorts of stuff um, in the online store. But you'd have to say, if you're a betting man, Triple Eight winning the first race of another new season, it's got to be looking pretty good. Especially as the homologation team for the Camaro. Mm. Oh, absolutely. They, yeah. They um, they know their way around building these brand new cars. Remember that they moved to Holden, 2010. Won they won the first race. Abu Dhabi, Yas Marina Circuit with Jamie Wing Cup. Car of the Future, 2013. Won their first race. Uh, what was the next change? ZB, ZB Commodore. Won their first race. Yeah, there's a theme here. Yeah. There's definitely a theme here. I think that there's a uh, a pretty solid possibility. But there's 24 other or 23 other team and driver combinations that are trying to knock them off in Newcastle as we start a new era, Gen 3 of supercars. So where it sits in the history books, we can only really judge 
probably in another 10 years' time when we're probably due for our next change, yes. whatever that might Gen be. Gen 4. Gen 4. Um, or Gen 4. A 4 Gen. Yeah, something along those lines. But I hope everyone's enjoyed this little look back because I've actually really enjoyed this, just stopping and pondering what's happened in the start of each of these eras over the course of history. We're going to find out in Newcastle how this all stacks up, who's got the best car. Do we, do we get a mix-up? Do we Every time we do shuffle the decks with the new regulations, we do get a little bit of a, a mixture of mid-pack runners emerging as a little bit stronger and then over time the heavyweights figure it all out and sort of take over the the mantle at the front more often do you think we're going to get that car of the future i've got the vibe that we're going to get something different in Newey. i really hope so like just looking at this result sheet from 2013 clipsal um fabian Coulthard led 24 laps that day mm. and bjr were the big winners out of that early early car of the future yeah, they, were they were strong at the end of blueprint but they became regular winners in Car of the Future. So there's a few teams up and down the paddock that will be hoping for a similar similar vault to the front. We're going to wait and see. Hey, before we go to a little quick one, just a little tidbit for our V8 Sleuth podcast listeners. You heard it here first. Dropping very, very soon. Keep your eye on our socials, our website. We'll talk about it on the pod when the time's right in the next few weeks. We're going to open pre-orders for the Triple Eight Car History Book 20th Anniversary Season for Triple Eight Race Engineering this year in supercars. Every car that they've raced in the championship from when they first turned up and inherited those John Briggs Falcons right through to the Camaros and the program that put those together for uh, this season and onwards of Gen 3 supercars. Uh, Stefan Bartholomew has been chatting with Jeremy Moore, with Mark Dutton, with former drivers. Uh, We've been delving through the photo archive. It's going to be one of our big behemoth books uh, limited edition. They'll all be numbered. Uh, the pre-order will open very, very soon. We'll give you all the details. But if you're a Triple Eight fan or if you love your motorsport history or if you've got our other chassis history books, whichever is the case, you've got to get in for this one and don't miss out. It's going to be a banger as well. Absolutely. I'm I'm really looking forward to properly sinking my teeth into the writing of that. Well, you've got to get the season guide done and dusted. That's, That's pretty much done it's very close. Yeah. Very close. Off to print this week. The Newcastle program's off to print this week as well. So they will be in your hot little hands very, very soon. And by the way, if you're going to be at the event, the Thrifty Newcastle 500, both will be available to purchase in Merchandise Alley, whether it's the Supercars Merchandise Tents or the various team merchandise outlets uh, at Newcastle, you can grab them there. Or, of course, if you're not able to go to the event, Order it online from us and we can whack it in the post to you and get it out to you. Uh, Tuesday, Cashflow Motorsport News Podcast. End of this week, Repco Supercars Weekly. Hope you've enjoyed this look at the start of various eras from championship history. We'll look back on this in a month or so's time and see if any themes have carried on with the first round of Gen 3. But until then, I'll chat to you next week with another edition of the V8 Salute Podcast. Bye for now. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars unforgettable. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.